You're listening to The Remix Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Repnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Hello there to my 30,000 listeners, well, approaching that number. I'm honored for you to listen to this podcast. I can't believe it's going to be my 41st episode. Many of you know that I'm an advocate for healthy family narratives, and especially when you've built your family in a non-traditional way, if that's through donor conception or surrogacy or through adoption. I believe open and honest family communication, you know, it really leaves little space for shame and secrecy. And those are the things we don't want children to internalize. So one way to change the narrative is to shed light on the source of some of these confusing narratives and the practices in the field that create even further confusion. I just ask that you listen with an open mind as I speak to Gail Pasco in this episode today. I just love to sit down and have coffee with you. So this is my way of sitting down and having coffee with you. So <laughs> I'm really excited, Gail. And I know a lot of people follow you and have followed your account. And I'm sure they're very excited to get to hear the lady behind um, this this account and this great wealth of information. So can you tell me uh, about a little bit about your story? I know a little bit from reading about you, but um, what kind of got you on this path and and prompted you to start the Instagram account, Donor Conception and Beyond? Well, I decided about five years ago when I started doing a little bit of research into donor conception because I discovered that my daughter had a lot of siblings I'm not sure how many they were at the time, but currently there's well over 100. And okay. that, that really appalled me. <laughs> I thought that was incredibly unethical. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure how that happened. So I decided that I was going to write a book. Mm-hmm. So, and initially I started writing a memoir. And then I spoke with Kate Bourne, um, the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority, or BARTA. Mm-hmm. And they're quite progressive. So mm-hmm. Victoria is one of the states in Australia. They're quite progressive in terms of legislation and just looking after donor conceived people, really. And um, she said, look, there's quite a few memoirs out there. What we need is a how-to. Yes. We need how to, how to show people you know, how to, what the options are out there, mm-hmm. how to choose a donor legislation, mm-hmm. how to talk to donor conceived, your donor conceived children, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So I started researching that and five years later I'm still writing the book, but I'm intending to finish it this year. Mm-hmm. So my Instagram page really is just about, um, you know, introducing people to some of these concepts and helping to educate people who are starting mm-hmm. this track about yeah. some of the things that I didn't know, that I was ignorant about and maybe saving people some grief around, in particular, large numbers of siblings, but also a range of other things mm-hmm. related to donor conception, which, of course, there's lots of lovely stories out there, but there is some really appalling things happening. Yes. And, you know, I'm looking, I just looked it up, what you talked about. It looks like the acronym is VARTA, V-A-R-T-A. It's the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority. Um, it's it says it's an independent, um, they provide independent information and support for individuals 
couples and health professionals on fertility and issues related to assisted reproductive treatment, and that they are funded by the Victorian Department of Health and Human Services. So it looks like it is run by um, independents. And do you know if they are funded by the government? They, they, um, they're government funded and they, um, I guess every state, um, well, actually, there are some states in Australia, there's some, com- some Commonwealth legislation, some national legislation, uh-huh. um, and then there's eight state or two territories, but eight, six states, two territories, and only four of them have legislation. Mm-hmm. So we still, we still, there's a way to go in terms of covering off, you know, yeah. and improving things related to joint conception. But we also Same. have some ethical guidelines, yes, and the ethical guidelines are not legislation, mm-hmm. but the fertility clinics over here are, must, must comply with the ethical guidelines. Is there, is there an authority that regulates or that um, enforces the regulations? There is uh, the um, Reproductive Technology Accreditation Committee. Okay. Um, they are comprised of, interestingly, some people who are employed by fertility clinics or, for example, might be CEO of a fertility clinic. So, in my opinion, they're, they're a conflict, um, of conflict of interest. Um, they do get independent bodies to go and regulate mm-hmm. the clinic. Oh, sorry, to um, enforce audit, okay. audit fertility clinics. Um, essentially, okay. they oversee the um, mm-hmm. stuff that goes on with fertility clinics. There are people in there that are not connected with individual fertility clinics as well. Okay. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> situation. You know, I think you and I are on the same page when where we are both, our goal is to encourage um, ethical practices in the field. We're both independent. I don't work for any clinics or agencies, and I haven't for the past decade. Um, I work for myself. And while that makes it sometimes hard to be heard, um, it it makes it helps me to keep me in a position that I can do what I feel is the right thing and, and help families, couples, and individuals be informed to the best of their ability um, and not be misled. So, yeah, so I think there's, it's a, we have an uphill climb, don't we? We do, because it, it is a huge money-making industry. And unfortunately, you know, that, that cash <laughs> incentive leads the way for a lot of clinics and banks and some individuals as well so it's, yes. it's hard to it's challenging it's very challenging I feel like there's enough people out there that want to know what's really happening and they want to be informed and they want to do the best thing for their kids that they the people will eventually you know kind of start to ask the right questions and dictate who they use best on how based on how these clinics practice and if they practice ethically or not. Absolutely, I think there's lots of people you know, opening their eyes. I think social media is certainly mm-hmm. helping with that, and lots of forums where you've got you, know, you can see people on there speaking about their, their personal experience, and that I can see a shift. Yeah, certainly in the five years that I've been researching this book. There are people that are really interested in in knowing 
uh, what, what impact is this going to have on my child? Yeah. I think one of the big problems is the narrative that these clinics and sperm banks and egg banks continue to tell people, which is that it's just a donor and it's just a sperm or it's just an egg. Mm-hmm. And that so for recipient parents, but you know, in many cases that is not so for donor conceived children and adults. Mm-hmm. It's it's a biological parent. So mm-hmm. I think that's hugely problematic. Yeah. And do you did you find that in your experience? Did the clinic tell you that as well when you were going through donation yes. mm-hmm. They said that to you. And then mm-hmm. when did your your daughter write? When did she start um, asking questions and and you know really expressing her feelings about it to you? Yeah, the first incident was when she was two. I remember being in the supermarket. I mean, she wouldn't have been, you know, wouldn't have really had a conceptual knowledge of any of this by then, of course. But she was calling out to me and she said, "Mummy, mummy!" And then she said, "Daddy!" <laughs> and I turned around and I went, "Oh, right. I guess we better start this conversation." Yeah. And I'd already been talking to her about it and. Um, she wouldn't really fully understood us. Just sort of do it, going through the motions, I guess, of mm-hmm. practicing is, uh, is recommended. Uh, but when she, I noticed that she really had some grief, when she could really articulate what was going on for her, it was probably when she was about six or seven, and she told me that she was really sad mm-hmm. that she didn't have a daddy. Mm-hmm. And last year, when she was seven, she told me that she would never ever use a donor. Mm. She told you that last year. Yeah. And how old is she now? She's eight, she's nine. Oh, she's eight or nine. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, she so has she... a lot of siblings. She has, you know, over a hundred. So I think mm. she finds it really difficult to get a hit around that. Oh, I mm. bet. It's so hard to, there's no narrative, social narrative for that. Do you, no. did you use a clinic in Australia or a, I'm sorry, a bank in Australia? There's no um, sperm banks, if you like, say in Australia. So the way it works here is you, there's a number of different ways, but one is that you go to a fertility clinic and if they have a contractual agreement with an international sperm bank, the sperm bank will ship the sperm into the clinic and then you you would go through um, assisted reproductive treatment. Okay. So in the clinic that I used... But they told me that the state limit was five families. Mm. So I went along with that, thinking that that sounds fairly reasonable. Mm-hmm. However, what they didn't mention was that there's a worldwide limit, mm. which the sperm bank, I was going to say enforces, but they didn't they really didn't. enforce that. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. And when I found that out, they told me that the sperm bank's limit was 20 families, mm. which I was a bit shocked at. Then they mm-hmm. upped the ante to 40 and then up to 60. However, they claim now that they do enforce that limit, but uh, when I found out there was over 80 families who've used my sperm donor, mm. and I just thought that was, you know, wow. It's so irresponsible. Doesn't it make you wonder, wasn't there someone that worked for the bank at some point must have thought, this doesn't feel right? But I think they convinced themselves they're helping people. And they don't think of the long-term consequences. Yeah, I often wonder that. That's, I think that's a really good question because I, I you know, periodically contact the sperm bank and I ask how many children there are. 
and I usually do it via email and I get somebody who's very friendly and very chirpy in their response and have to help you. And then when I start asking the really hard questions, or what they do is they ignore my specific questions and they'll say, yes, we know there's over 60 families. And I'll respond and say, yes, I know that too. I know, in fact, there's over 80 families. And then the, the emails start getting a little bit uh, quieter. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so they won't tell me how many children there are. And I think because they don't know. They don't know, yeah. Mm-hmm. They know how many are reported at birth. But, mm-hmm. you know, my understanding is that only about, um, I think it's just over 50% of people in the US actually report at birth. So how many, how many children are there that haven't been reported? Yeah. Will we ever know? Yeah, that's true. We do hear from donors too that say that they thought their sperm, maybe a few families would pick their sperm and had, were shocked to also find out that they had that many offspring. Yeah, it must be a real shock. Mm. Mm. I do wonder sometimes because, uh, I mean, I think some of the donors must have been donating for quite a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And quite frequently, mm-hmm. um, in order to produce that many children. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. yeah, I don't think the counselling is necessarily that, that effective, uh, or if, if any. I've um, never counselled a sperm donor in the decade of counselling. <laughs> Not one. <laughs> Not one yeah. has been sent, referred to me. So I don't. I don't think counselling is really being done. I think it's being done possibly by the staff, internal staff, which we know there is a conflict of interest. So, you know, I think that. The, and there, I know when I did research on it about a year ago, and maybe six months ago, and it could have changed. But they were administer, administering a test. Uh, the one clinic I called, um, but the test was more of a personality test in the way of what are you like? Are you bubbly? Are you reserved? Are you quiet? It wasn't a true personality inventory that was looking for um, any kind of pathology or disorder. I don't know that they do any screening, at least here on sperm donors still that are, that's very extensive because it would be expensive to do. Well, I, I know that if in Australia, if you were using an international sperm donor, the sperm bank is supposed to comply with Australian guidelines in that they are meant to undergo counselling to Australian standards. Mm. Uh, now, whether that occurs or not, or to whether it, it does comply with Australian standards, yeah. Mm-hmm. But do the Australian standards uh, require that the counselling be done by an independent person outside of the bank? Or by, is a staff member in the bank okay to do? Is that okay? It is okay. As long as okay. they are, are, um, have accreditation for fertility, they can use. So you can either use the counsellor supplied by the fertility clinic or you can go and source your own independent fertility, uh, fertility counsellor mm-hmm. as long as they are um, <clears throat> accredited in fertility counselling. So mm-hmm. potentially... Yeah, so in that way, then they possibly were meeting the guidelines because, like I said, a lot of places have in-house counselors that work for the organization. Yeah. Okay. So, right. But it is a conflict of interest because if your employer, your boss that's paying you your paycheck every week is motivated by passing individuals so he or she can, you know, make the money and get more donors and have more donors for parents and match more people, then... 
you're going to have a pretty, a little bit more of a lenient look at if a person is ready to donate. Um, you might pass over things that you would, you wouldn't otherwise. I've had egg donation agencies that used me for independent um, counseling and screening on their egg donors. And when I found a psychological disorder, they called me up furious that I was giving them bad news and that this person had bipolar disorder and they questioned my testing. They questioned me and they were furious when I didn't pass their donors. That's fine, isn't it? Yeah, I've, I've, I've written a few blog posts around um, cutting corners and things like that. And one of the <clears throat> one of the families in this said that the um, percentage of children in the sorry, they had a 25 or 30 children in their group who do the same donor, and some massive percentage of them had a number of disorders such as ADHD, autism, sort of well above the average. Mm-hmm. So which suggests, of course, that um, it points back to the donor. So in that instance, was the donor screened effectively? Were they screened at all? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I so. had a case on, on our, my podcast, an episode where um, a young mom got pregnant with a, fir- a donor. It was a first-time donor, and her baby had a severe heart defect, and she lost the baby at 20 weeks. Oh. And she called the clinic back to tell them that this donor had um, a, the baby had a heart defect, and she wanted to let the the clinic know, and she also wanted to let the um, the donor know, so the donor yeah. would know for her own future children. And they said, "No, no, no, we're we're not going to tell her that information." <laughs> and that's in the podcast episode you can listen to with Liz. Um, I can't remember which number it is, but I think it's number eight. Well, in my research, I've encountered some interesting things that the sperm banks do, such as, um, in fact, this happened in our group, I believe, putting, posting a new donor, in inverted commas, the new, and then discovering actually that they've already got a couple of dozen children. Um, wow. So they, yeah. they're lying. Yeah. About- and then you find the donors um, who have donated at more than one clinic and Apparently, there's about a quarter of donors in the US who donated more than one clinic. So you might decide, you know what, I'm going to really be careful here, and I'm going to purchase sperm from a donor that's it's a term called exclusive, which means exclusive can vary in its definition. It can mean either one family, <coughs> excuse me, can use the donor, or it might mean just five families worldwide or ten families worldwide. You think I'm doing the right thing here, and then the donor may have donated another clinic, or another sperm bank. So, or they may then go out and decide to be a known donor and mm-hmm. do it outside of the sperm banks. So you really don't know <laughs> you get mm-hmm. into. Yeah, um, and then the communication can be poor at the sperm banks, as you said. That you know, there, there are a number of cases of where people have reported illnesses or inherited disease in their child and they won't share it with the other families unless it's a life and death situation, Um, this kind Mm. of thing. Wow. Yeah. And we had a case, I know there's a case here where, I don't know if this happens in Australia, where if a sperm bank is going out of business and gets bought out by a larger bank, they will acquire all the frozen sperm from the, the smaller bank and not change their marketing platform. So there was a 
so they're, they may be marketing their sperm donors as educated, um, you know, a certain type of donor. And then when they acquire this other donors, they may be from a different region, you know, in the country or um, have various, they don't even really know the qualifications of these donors because the paperwork was maybe not kept up really well. And, and they never change their marketing. So then the couple goes to the sperm bank thinking they're getting this really highly screened donor when they might be getting a donor that the company acquired from a smaller bank from a different region. And they're not telling them. Does that happen? Yeah, that that can have impacts as well in terms of the guidelines that sperm bank has. So, for example, if the previous smaller sperm bank had a sensible family limit of, say, 10 families, and the bigger sperm bank that purchases them has a one of 20 or 30, then that impacts people who have got existing children Mm -hmm. from the sperm bank and they... They continue to sell the sperm so that so that previously I've got a child, I believe that the family limit is 10. Now the new sperm bank has purchased a smaller one and they've decided to up the ante. So now the family limit has increased and okay. then siblings come out of the woodwork. Later that you, okay, so it changes. So you may go in and be told the limit is 10 but if they get sold out to a bigger bank now the, and the bank changes the policy, now it could be 20, 25, 30. And so yes. you're already a parent. You have no choice. And now this is happening to your, your child's future is that they have more siblings now. Okay. Wow. I didn't even, I didn't think about that, but that's a good, there's so many things that people don't know. And there's so many things that aren't being shared on purpose. There's no transparency. And that's what I'm calling for. Is transparency and the legislation, you know, or lack thereof, is means that they can really do anything they want. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There aren't. Um, there are just the beginnings of some laws coming about here in the United States, but um, there's recently the law that was has been passing in a couple states, including Texas, is that doctors cannot use their own sperm without yes. consent and they've criminalized it. So if a doctor uses his own sperm to impregnate uh, his patient without telling her, um, it's a crime. There's so many victims of that way. Yeah. yeah. People have uh, discovered that their, their mother's sperm donor is in fact a fertility doctor and it's and multiple, multiple children in some cases. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to believe. It's hard mm-hmm. to believe that that was, you know, they just never dreamed that that anyone would ever find out, never could see, yeah. like there would be technology that could make it so easy to to know the truth. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, huh. DNA testing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it changed everything. It really changed everything. And it's a good thing because I think without DNA testing, it would be really difficult to have any change come about it would be very difficult. Um, the, the DNA testing I'm hearing more and more just in the past year, my clients are coming to me telling me now when they didn't before that their clinic and their agencies are finally telling them that, that anonymity is not, doesn't really exist anymore. Well, yeah, and I wonder about that. Like what, what are they actually, and I had a conversation on Instagram about, that woman from the egg agency, which you were a part of, and 
I asked her, what is it that you tell potential donor recipients when you tell them that they are able to select anonymity? How are you guaranteeing that in today's world of DNA testing? Mm-hmm. And she didn't respond. She didn't respond. <laughs> yeah. Because really, you know, what they're telling them cannot possibly be true. Mm, that's right. It's not true. It's impossible now. You know, I think they use the term maybe to mean um, that you don't know the identity mm. at this point, but that's all it can possibly mean is you don't know now, but that doesn't mean you can't know at some point in the future. Yeah. So there's yeah. different terminology I think that needs to be applied and maybe, you know, in the adoption field that used to call it closed versus open adoption. Mm. I think in donor conception, at least over here, they're calling it um, donor ID release or, yeah. Um, there's various terms, but there's no one standard term either. So uh, each client I talk to has almost a different term of what their agency uses. And they have to explain it to me every time I have to say, okay, tell me what that means (laughs) for your question. Because I don't know, you know, well, they tell me, and and I'll tell you, most of the time the clients are confused. They don't even really know for sure. They're kind of like, well, I think what it is, is we can have, the child can have this information at, at 18. Well, what if there's a health problem and you want to contact? Mm, I'm not sure. I said, you may not get the answers, but at least you've asked. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. I think same in Australia, the definitions varied up. We tend to use ID release, but, um, and interestingly, so my daughter also got very angry when she found out that she couldn't get the donor's identifying details until mm-hmm. she's 18. Mm-hmm. And technically not allowed to contact him when, until she's 18, she said, but that I'll be so old. I will have missed 18 years of that one. That's a mm. stupid rule. Yes. And I agree with her. I it, agree I, too. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that they've made this rule about 18 and why it's in place. I don't know why they put it in place originally, but now I think it really is convenient for a lot of the um, sperm and egg banks and things because, you know, it just sort of keeps people separated. But it make, I think that makes it much more convenient for them to it, I think I agree. It's a matter of convenience and they just don't have to deal with it. And if time passes, maybe they won't have to deal with it ever. But I agree with you. It actually not knowing until 18, the kids miss out on those crucial years where knowing helps them understand who they are. And that information can give them pieces of their identity. I don't know if you know, but I was adopted at six weeks old and it was a closed adoption. And so I didn't know um, anything about my birth. I knew some details, some, you know, some height, eye color, um, some ethnic background, but I didn't meet my birth father until I was 20. And mm-hmm. by that time, I had, that was a lot of time to try to fill in a gap with a bunch of imagination. <laughs> and I have a big <laughs> imagination. Yeah. So I, out of time wondering and creating this idea um, that probably it wasn't really based in reality, but I didn't know any better. I was a kid. So that's the kind of, it's called the fantasy family or the fantasy, fantasy parent. And why that's difficult on a kid is that it's, it develop it, it's creates a sense of, of operating in not in, not in reality at times and also an unrealistic expectations of that person who's missing, you know, Mm -hmm. like maybe there's some ideal person and they are, you know, a famous singer or, you know, maybe they're just like this 
you know, you just fill in the blank with anything that the child's imagination can take them to. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's where it becomes difficult then when you're faced with the real person. And what does this mean to me now at 18? And who am I? And, you know, this, okay, this person actually turned out to be kind of different than I expected is that it, it, there's can just be this confusion that, and, and not to say that wouldn't be there anyway, at some point, just, you know, we're t- going through your teenage years are confusing, but I think yes. that to make this arbitrary 18 years old, that's, that's like, it, it is, it's unusual. It's, I think they picked it because that's the way adoption law worked is that you could open your records at 18. So I couldn't have access until my, to my own records until I was 18 as well. And wow. then I had to petition a judge to have them open up so I could find out who my birth parents were. And also just parents, when you're a new parent and you're young and you want, or not young, you know, you want to, um, you want to have that experience to yourself. And I think there's a fear that knowing who that other person is might intrude or invade your family life. And I think there's just a lot of fear around that. And I know there is because parents talk to me about it all the time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's very common. But then on the, on the flip side, when, when we speak with donor conceived adults and they say, well, it doesn't make me love my parents any less, parents that raised me. So it's an interesting perspective um, to hear from the children and the adults. Yeah. yeah. There's, an, there's enough love. There's space to love more than one. Yeah. Um, person in your life. So there's space to love more than one parent figure in your life too. And, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, I know you mentioned that a lot of donor or conceived um, adults and kids believe that they see that as a biological parent, not a donor. You know, we use the word donor a lot of times um, to dissociate from the importance of of that person. And to some people, it may just be a donor. It may just be a donor. To other people, it may not be. It may be very much more, you know, a biological kin. And so, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you know which, which, how your child's going to respond? Yes, it's huge. It's a regression real life, really, isn't it? I think we, mm-hmm. we need to prepare, um, prepare for that possibility. With adoption research, what I found is that they say that it really depends on the personality of the child as to how they react to being adopted or feelings of adoption. And it you can look at it and break it down into almost thirds. So one third of the population of adoptees or one third of op- adoptees really are curious about their biological parent and want to know more from very early age. The other third, they um, aren't curious at all. They don't really ask about it. It's not really relevant to them. And then that sort of that final grouping of the third, they aren't curious until a life event comes along that triggers their curiosity. And so you're really looking kind of at two thirds of of adoptees that are curious at some point. And then um, this researcher, David Brodzinski, um, wrote a book called um, Being Adopted, The Lifelong Search for Self. He says that 100% of adopted individuals search are their biological parents in their mind. Because the search isn't just about a physical search. It's about thinking about that person that helped you come to be and wondering. 
And I find that fascinating. So I wonder if that those same numbers might apply to donor conceived, maybe a little less so just given that they do have one parent they are genetically related to. So maybe there's less curiosity, but it'd be so interesting to know. I wish we, I'm really looking forward to studies on that someday. Yeah. I I, I always think, I wonder what donor conception is going to look like in 20 years time. Will it be Mm -hmm. similar to, you know, who've really made inroads to and improved and I really hope so. I hope so too. Yeah. You know, we have good a good model, and I've talked about before in the adoption community. So it's it's been done, and and there's ways to do it. We can learn from the adoption community as to how to navigate relationships between biological and social parents, and and make that work. So the child has access to all of that information from the time yes. that they're little, and they can use it or not as much as they want. Maybe they don't really want to know their biological parent or donor much, but they are. Um, but they have that choice at least. It's not kept from them. Yes. And I think that's a really important bit is about having that choice, isn't it? And, mm-hmm. and some of them are going to say, all right, I've met my donor. I'm not really that interested. And that's, that's okay. But at least they've had that choice put forward to them. The other thing I was going to say is, and I, I wonder if your daughter fits into this category. I mentioned it in my book. Um, I think that there, it could be just, again, the personality of your child and, some children are deeper thinkers and they are curious and they are, um, you know, they might be the personality types that do really want to know. And it's a trait that Dr. Elaine Aaron over here researched called the highly sensitive person. And it's found on the, it's a normal personality trait found on the alleles of DNA. What do you think? Yeah, I've done some research on highly sensitive people as well, the 20-odd percent of the population, because uh, I'm quite sensitive. I'm not highly sensitive uh, after I read all the uh, criteria, but mm-hmm. my daughter is not highly sensitive either, but she is sensitive. Mm-hmm. So I feel for her, and I, she definitely is curious, and she definitely wants to know, and she'd like to mm-hmm. meet him if she could. I know that. Um, and she feels grief around his absence. Mm-hmm. But she, she's happy generally. She's a happy little person. But it sort of comes in cycles, I think. And, you know, if she's triggered by something or somebody asks her a question or, you know, her, I guess how she's feeling on the day, she might express some sort of grief, anger. Mm-hmm. There's some anger there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have conversations about it. I let her initiate. Um, we have conversations about it whenever she needs to. And I've just told her that that I, I'm I've said to her that I'm sorry not 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 in the sense that I'm sorry that she exists because I think that's a dangerous road mm-hmm. to go down but I'm sorry that mm-hmm. it's not a known donor yeah okay to you and in hindsight that's probably the path I would have gone down you know? okay so it's a beautiful thing so we just have to move on with the situation that we've got mm-hmm. and I know that personally if I was in her situation I would be feeling the same things I would be feeling grief no, I was just reflecting on what you were saying because one, I, I really think people should understand that when we say sensitive, it's not in the way of people go, oh, your feelings are easily hurt or you're soft. So this is a name for a trait for people that are deep thinkers, that are highly um, perceptive. Um, they have a depth of processing 
They notice subtleties in their environment. They yes. tend to be very empathetic. Mm-hmm. And um, as, because of all that stimulation, they pick up on extra things in their environment. And so they tend to be more over, easily overstimulated. You know, there's so many gifts to it, but then that one, you know, that being wanting to know more is truly, truly a part of who they are. And, and to minimize that or dismiss that for them is, it could be quite devastating to them because it almost denies who they are. Yeah, and I think um, just going back to that narrative that we are fed all the time by the clinics and the sperm banks and the egg banks that this person is just a donor, mm-hmm. just a sperm egg. And that is so heavily ensconced in people's minds. You know, when I have conversations, I'm like, what are you talking about? It's just a donor. And, and for me, uh, it, it did take quite a while to get my head around that as well on these multiple Facebook and Instagram groups and things. Uh, when hearing from journey conceived people and it took a little while for the penny to drop and I think one of the statements that somebody made was which helped was when they said when you have adoptees and you have people who are conceived by a one-night stand they why why is it that they're allowed to go and find their biological parent and in in many cases they're actively encouraged to go and find their biological parent and donor conceived people are not. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's because it's not spun that way by the, by the clinics. It's really brainwashed and it takes a while to undo that brainwashing. Um, so it really saddens me when, um, I mean, I understand that people are not getting it because of that, but it, it does sadden me. And I, and I wonder for their child how that's going to play out completely separated from siblings as well. But yeah, I do, I do think that it is hard for people to understand why it is more than a, a sperm and more than just an egg or just a sperm to, mm. a, to the person that is created as a result of that. Mm. And it's, it's funny because I think... Um, uh, well, a lot of donor-conceived adults say, well, he's not, he or she, they're not my donor. They didn't donate anything to me. And yeah. they, they can be quite, um, you know, a bit angry over people using that term. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. My daughter used that when she met up with a couple of her siblings who meet up with frequently and they had an argument about it. <laughs> yeah. Because the other parent had not been using that term with them and she became quite confused. Her daughter became uh-huh. quite confused when my daughter was saying, well, he's not my donor, he's my biological parent. And the mm. other child was saying, he's not my parent, he's just a donor. So that was mm. really interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's so many, there's so many different perspectives and I, we have to respect all of them because that is a reality. It's a reality for your daughter that that is her biological parent. And then yeah. it's a reality for the other that it's not. It, yeah. I think that's what's so difficult is there is no right, one right way. I mean, I do believe there are right ways ethically to in the business, <laughs> in the field. Yes. That's a whole different topic. But yeah. in terms of how the, the kid feels about it that grows into the adult, that is, there are so many different feelings and we just have to respect where where they're coming from. And guess what? And I know you know this, they might start out being, oh, it's just a donor. And then when they're 35, you, they can change their mind. They can feel differently over time. 
That's so true. And I think it's one of the triggering things for gender conceived people, isn't it? And, and, and some of the stories I hear as well is that because you've got recipient parents on these groups and I've spoken and they're like, it's fine. They're not showing any interest. They don't want to they don't want to meet the donor or they don't want to know anything about the donor. And then you've got this donor conceived adult saying, Well, that was me. I used to say that because mm-hmm. I wanted to protect my parents. Yeah. I didn't want to upset my parents by saying, actually, I would really like to know a bit more about them or meet them or you know, whatever that plays out. But so I'm really Absolutely. mindful of that as well. Yeah. I'll allow her to say anything she wants. That's right. You the the both adoptees and donor conceived individuals do take on a protective role of their parents. Mm. And at times in order to not bring up sensitive or painful information, if the parents haven't dealt with that, those feelings and that loss, um, then it becomes this taboo topic. Like what you're an almost, or almost an implied message, you're supposed to be okay with this. So if you're not, then I'm not okay. Then mom and dad aren't okay. So we really hope you're okay, right? You're okay, aren't you? (laughs) You know, well, what's a kid going to do? Of course, this kid's going, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Because they, I mean, they just depend on you. So, so that we have to be so careful of. Yeah. And you can, and they do protect it. Their parents or don't feel like comfortable sharing because they care about them. They don't want to hurt their feelings. Um, and they, I think talking about the hard stuff makes you even closer. People are so afraid that if they talk about it, it's going to interfere with their family. But in our experience, by talking about it, it's made us our bond stronger. You know, if you feel angry, that's okay. I'll, you know, I'll hear you. you. You can be angry about this. You can say anything you want to me, and and I will I'll listen to you. And, um, so you know, we'll see how that how that unfolds. Um, yeah, because she's eight, right? So, mm. Yeah. My daughter's 15 and yeah, she, uh, she told the first time she told me I wasn't her real mom was when she was about, I think she's like four or five. I mean, she, I thought it was going to be teenage years and it, she was so young when she screamed at me. I have a visual memory of where we were standing. That's how much it, cause I was read, I was prepared for it, but not that soon. You know, yeah. being a therapist, I had considered it. And, uh, so it happened pretty early on. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I guess I don't have that issue, but I suppose people who've used egg donors and men who've used sperm donors. Yeah. Potentially on the receiving end of that kind of comment. Yeah. I've had the normal, you're the worst mum in the world kind of comment. The worst mum, yeah. Or I hate you. I've had that one too. (laughs) I wish wish Nana was my mum. Oh. No. <laughs> don't tell Nana that. No. So yeah, for for my daughter, we ha- she has moments of anger and sadness, and I just if she brings it up, we just stop everything and we just talk about it, especially in middle right. school, and that really that helped. And just to, sometimes she just didn't really know what she was feeling. She's like, I'm sad, but I don't know why. So, so I had to like, I had to try to connect some dots. You know, if it was like a family tree project at school, and she was crying that night, uh-huh. trying to work on it. And I'd be like, is this upsetting you? No, I'm just mad about, you know, my, my water spilled. And it's like, well, okay, well, let's talk about this. And if I asked a few more questions, out came the real feelings, which was, yes, "Yes, I do think about it. Yes. I wonder what happened. Yeah. I wonder if she died. My friend asked me a couple of weeks ago, if my birth mom died, you know, and, and that's the first I'd heard of it. So I was like, she did. Okay. Well tell me, let's talk, you know? And 
yeah, sometimes they just don't come out right away. So you kind of have to ask these little questions and, and get it out of them. Yeah, and I'm going to include in the book as well lots of uh, stories. Mm-hmm. So from Jane, you can see people from donor recipients and donors. So mm-hmm. just to sort of you know, provide some lived yeah. experience from all of the different receptive, receptive perspectives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are so many different different perspectives. I just, you know, I've appreciated your honesty on your Instagram post, um, the way you present questions and the controversy surrounding donor conception in a way that I think makes people think. Do you, have you ever had a negative responses to, to your account at all? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes when I post something quite controversial, mm-hmm. um, that opposes somebody's current line of thinking, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll lose followers. Yeah. And that doesn't really bother me per se. What upsets me is that they've now lost the chance, I guess, of listening to other people's comments and sort of opening themselves to something that perhaps they hadn't previously considered. Mm-hmm. So I do get people that, and I have had some people responding to things like, uh, oh, I think I asked a question once about should donor names be placed on birth certificates? And I actually believe they should. I think that there should be a line mm-hmm. donor to if you, double donation or that they should be on there for your child because I think everything should be child-centric about yeah. this whole donor mm-hmm. conception process. We really mm-hmm. should be focused on the child. Mm-hmm. So in that way, they know exactly who their biological parents are. They know who the parents mm-hmm. are that are raising them. And they don't have to do any searching. And I've had people respond on a particular post, you know, they're, they're just a donor. Why would they want to be, why should they be on uh, the birth certificate? It's ridiculous type comments. Mm. Yet, interestingly, uh, people um, often talk about how they want to, you know, they have difficulty using a donor. Yeah. Because, they- because they're not using their own. Yeah. Genetics and the person, the child is not going to be genetically related. Mm-hmm. Yet, they then struggle with the fact that their child mm-hmm. might want to know their, you know, their, their biological parents and their genetics. So it's sort of a, a, an invisible hypocrisy, yeah, <laughs> and, and a, a, a lack of awareness around the hypocrisy. It's it's um, interesting. Yeah, it it is. It's a, or a a form of denial. Or a, um, yeah, um, that I've seen that as well. And it's, there's, you know, there's so many varying perspectives, perspectives under that too. So when I remember I first started counseling, I thought that same thing because people would come to me and go, I absolutely do not want to adopt, but we want to use a donor. And okay, okay, you know, but tell me about, you know, why you, what, what your thoughts are on adoption. Well, I just can't imagine you know, raising a child that's um, genetically different and it just, you know, just not open to it. Or maybe they wouldn't know why. They would say, you know, I just don't know, but I just, it's just not for me. And, and then we would get into the details of, well, you know, your child might feel the same about as an adopted child in ways and at times. And um, so there was this, this denial in place where it was like, well, we can, but we, so there's one of two things. So it's either kind of depending on their reactions, it was either, well, we can deny this though, 
and it doesn't matter what the child feels kind of like, this is how I feel. And I'm going to kind of just move on. Or there was a sense of, um, but we want more control and this feels more familiar. And so like in the case of a male that would use a sperm donor, but wouldn't adopt that he would say, well, I know it's coming from her though, from my wife. And it's part of, and then there was a third scenario would be like, I understand that, but I, we really, we, we would adopt, but we really want to have a child together. My wife wants to experience pregnancy and I really want to see my wife in a, in a baby, in our baby. And so there was a sense of, in some couples that say, what well, we just want to see the love that we share a product of that love. And that, so, you know, you kind of have to you know, suss out what it is. Is this a deep denial, a rejection of genetic differences, differences, or is this a real true desire to experience pregnancy and some sort of normal, you know, pr- route to parenthood and to see your, your spouse in your offspring, even if it's not you, but at the same time, you can embrace the genetic differences and be that parent that, you know, that says, Hey, I know we're different and I accept it. So I see, I see things across the entire spectrum with parents. Yeah. 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 And look, maybe um, hypocrisy is too strong a word because I think, again, you know, people have been hearing this line from the, the clinics and things as well. Um, yeah. That, that it's just a donor, but, but then forgetting, I guess, forgetting that your child may experience the same feelings around wanting to have that genetic connection. Yeah. So. yeah, it's complicated. So we've talked about sperm donation. How does egg donation work in Australia? There's a number of different ways people can do it with their egg donation. Some, some people will become clinic recruited donors. So in other words, they might have done IVF themselves and have leftover eggs. Mm-hmm. And they'll yeah. decide to donate those. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty rare. Um, or they might just come in with the sole intent of donating their eggs and do a cycle. Okay. That way. But that's really rare. Most clinics suggest, look, don't wait. It might be several years on the waiting list for those. What m- most people do is they use a known donor. So there are sort of matching websites where donors and intended parents go on and you know, they'll sort of advertise and say, look, I want a donor, this is this is my situation. And then the egg donor will approach a person whom they might like to donate to. Then they'll go to a clinic and go through a standard assistant reproductive treatment to okay. donor egg stimulation and transfer so forth. The other options are that people will use, there, are, there is an agency in Australia that sends people overseas so they'll do the initial treatment in, um, and so forth in Australia, go over, they'll, they'll choose their donor online, go over and do the transfer and then come back and continue to monitor the pregnancy here. So is that because it's, is anonymous donation not uh-huh. legal? Well, so in, yes, in Australia, anonymous donation is illegal. However, they sort of get around that by sending them overseas. So it's, and nobody is really um, mm. holding them to that. The, the other thing that people do is they will use an international egg agency and they'll mm-hmm. go to their obgyni or their GP and do the initial cycle here 
treatment here and they'll go choose their donor online and go and do the transfer and things overseas and come back, um, similar to the Australian agency. Okay. But in, and in many cases, almost all, they're anonymous as well. So they're getting around it. Yeah. The, the other thing you can do is you can donate imported eggs any, and go through a fertility clinic. <laughs> if you do that, they have to be aligned with Australian because they're coming, because the eggs are imported into an Australian fertility clinic, they have to align with Australian standards, which is the donor has to be ID release, the donor has to be counselled, uh, and all of these things. So that that's in, in many ways a better way to do it. Okay. Uh, going to these countries overseas where anonymity is the only option, like Greece and South Africa. Okay, yeah, because I definitely read that about Australia, and so it's good to know that, have that information about... The policy and also how about how people are finding a way around that too. I know that this show will prompt questions from people and just to be able to have such a frank conversation with somebody is with you is um, so important and helpful and that we're sharing information and, and putting this, that's how we can make continue to make a difference. And I feel very passionately about it. And, you know, when I was first driven to do this work, it was about the kids, the kids that were being born. No one was being their voice or very few people were speaking for them and they couldn't speak for themselves. And so I really kept them in mind the whole time. And they've always been on the top of my mind is how can we educate parents to help them to, to help their children in the long run and be their guide and example. So, um, yeah, let's keep talking. And before, and well, I'll wrap it up just by saying, you know, again, thank you so much for coming today. I've been so looking forward to talking to you. So, likewise, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, it's really wonderful. I think you're doing an amazing job as well out there. Thank you. you. Things that you're doing, it's really podcasts and just educating people. Yeah, because they need to hear another perspective intended parents and recipient parents because um, you know, there, there are other perspectives than what these fertility clinics and community banks are giving us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow for more content, you can go to my Instagram and Facebook account at Jana Rupnow LPC or follow Three Makes Baby on Instagram. You can get a copy of my book, and the companion workbook to Three Makes Baby on Amazon. If you like this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. Have a great day.